leaders. What keeps you up at night? Welcome to The Sweet Spot, the podcast series that expands the traditional term of what a boss is to tackle some of the most important issues in business. From business as usual and growing your market to everyday leadership issues or handling one in 100 year events, we aim to provide ongoing inspiration and education for CEOs, founders, management, shareholders, and leaders of every stripe. The sweet spot is the future of work and business. Cedo Kitchen is a well-known name in the New Zealand magazine industry. From having been the editorial director across New Zealand's legendary women's magazines to now having four titles of her own, she is someone who has shown leadership at a time when the media industry was at risk. Listen on as she explains her key defining moment that changed the game for the New Zealand magazine industry. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm super excited to have you in the studio. Um, Cito, I wanted to start off our chat slightly differently. Usually when we have our guests, we talk about their journey, and that's definitely something that I want to you know, talk to you about later on. But I wanted to start off by asking you about your key defining moment. And, and I guess not only in your life, but in a lot of people's lives last year was when COVID-19 hit. Um, tell us about that sort of key moment when you found out about Bauer Media's Zoom call. Oh, um, I just got shivers <laughs> you even asking me that. Oh. Yeah, well, we were, I was sitting at home in my lounge. I had never been a person that worked from home, but... For a week, we had been publishing um, our magazines remotely. So we were all joined but apart, you know, um, and we pumped up one issue of Women's Weekly and Women's Day remotely. So I was the mass market um, women's uh, magazine editorial director for Bauer. So I was across, yeah, the mass women's title. So I was sitting alone in my... um, in the corner of my lounge where my husband had set up a desk in the sun in my hoodie with my dog at my feet. Uh, you know, we were logged on. We had a magazine on deadline that day. But, yeah, we were asked to be on a Zoom very early in the morning. And so I remember everybody chatting remotely about everyone. Was, a lot of people weren't even on Zoom, you know. They, 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 they weren't using Zoom. We had our own sort of chat system going, but I think we had Slack going. But, um, yeah, so suddenly there was a sort of scramble to make sure that the team were all going to be on this Zoom call, I didn't really have time to think about what it was going to be about. I was worried about the team, I think. I had about 32 people on the team. And uh, um, I didn't think it was going to be good, but, you know, it all happened so quickly. I guess I thought, I didn't know how bad it was going to be. I thought it would be about tightening the budgets and, okay. you know, yeah, um, yeah. you know, yeah. You don't think of the worst, obviously. No, I yeah, think yeah, of the exactly. worst. So, yeah, and then, then there was, um, we were told that the business was closing. So... I think everything went into slow-mo. My kids and my husband had gone out for a walk, so no one was home, which was quite good, actually, because I could just sort of sit there. I remember everything going into slow motion and just go, you just can't quite believe it's real, right? You're just going over. And even that night when I went to bed, I still couldn't think, well, did that really just happen? You know, it's yeah, just, a surreal moment. It was surreal. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I think I just took a deep breath and thought I have to communicate with everybody, so I just uh, sent an email to the team. Um, saying how sorry I was. It was heartbreaking. And then um, just got on the phone and started talking. In fact, I didn't even talk to my, um, tell my husband until about halfway through the day because I'd just been on the to- on the phone talking to my, all my colleagues. It was really, really incredibly sad day. Mm. Don't like to think about it yeah. <laughs> if that's not so, apparent yeah, yeah, because, yeah. Um, yeah, it was brutal. Uh, but I was glad the sun was shining 
you know, sort of helped keep some things in perspective. But yeah, it was pretty horrible because for me, it wasn't just um, my colleagues, my team that I thought about um, deeply and felt huge responsibility for. Um, it was also this sort of ecosystem that ha- happens around magazines. It's the stylists, the makeup artists, the, the, the columnists, the freelance writers, the freelance designers. There's so many other people apart from those 32 people that relied on that magazine stable that I was looking after. And then there were my readers and um, hundreds of thousands of New Zealand women who I just thought needed those magazines more than ever at that time. And, you know, we had been working so hard in that week prior to, you know, make sure that this magazine was there and I thought of the Women's Weekly Readers in particular, so many, you know, uh, older ladies that would have been on their own. I thought that's this is one connection that they could get through the through the letterbox if they're a subscriber each week. Um, you know, and we really we really do, do care about those readers immensely. So that was devastating as well. All those I thought at a time when people needed connection more than ever. We couldn't provide that as well. So, yeah, yeah, it seems a long time ago. How long ago is it now? Is it 10 months or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, Uh, But, yeah, I can still remember that day. A very, very, very long day. But it's it's incredible now that you talk about that ecosystem. You've sort of managed to revive it again, you know, and and you're sort of bringing life and joy. I mean, I have all these four magazines in front of me, and and gosh, they look amazing. I mean, and tell us about the School Road Publishing deal. How yeah. did that happen? Well, I was very. I mean, I I in that time I was unemployed for four months, and I think I was watching all these um colleagues of mine doing amazing things. Many of them starting up new websites and you know doing and, and write, you know being being, you know, yeah, productive. I was inert. I couldn't do anything. I spent a lot of time <laughs> yeah, yeah. with my family, but just I just was pretty shell-shocked, to be honest. And I didn't know what I was going to go next, but certainly I thought my magazine career could, could be over. Um, but then there was a time when they started bringing in the Aussie editions of um, some of the titles I was responsible for, and, and they were just selling those, and there were no New Zealand stories in there. At the time, New Zealand Women's Weekly didn't seem to have someone... Um, interested in buying it, or certainly not according to the other media. And I think when I, it was at that time, I suddenly, I suddenly thought, well, who's going to tell all these women's stories if, 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 if the Australian um, content is coming pouring in and, and, and New Zealand Women's Weekly is not telling stories and, and um, Women's Day, which I was ed- had been editing, is, is not telling all these New Zealand stories. Who's going to do this? And my colleague Sophie Neville said to me, I think, I think maybe we have to do it. And I was wow. like, I was like no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to. I can't do that. And she said, yeah. I, th- "I think it's either us." And so I went away and thought about that. And then I took a deep breath and I rang a friend who I um, really respect, and I said, "What do you think about try- me trying to buy the Women's Weekly?" <laughs> and she said, "It makes complete sense." But then she advised me to talk to um, um, someone that I'd worked for previously, a man I admire hugely, John Barnett, mm. um, who is uh, yeah really well established. Um, film and television producer in New Zealand, ran South Pacific Pictures and rang him and said, he he likes to tell New Zealand stories, that's what he does, but usually through film or Mm. music or um, in in different ways than what I've done. But um, I gave him a ring and he said, great idea. Wow. So sort of in the background, I was busy. I was trying to do this purchase. Anyway, at the 11th hour, the long and short of it is we got very close. Um, We were the only um, um, people EY um, we're talking to at the end uh, mm-hmm. during that purchase process. So I did a hell of a lot of work yeah. on that. I sort of had the press release ready and I oh. had the team picked <laughs> and I, had a, I was ready to go. Had the offices and da 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 da. Anyway, the eleventh hour, the new um, um, owners of um, Bauer uh, decided that they were going to 
hang on to some of those magazines and it included New Zealand Women's Weekly. So at least, you know, it was sad because I would love to have done it, but at the same time I was just thrilled that some that it was going to continue exactly. after nearly 90 years. Mm. Um, but unbeknownst to me, um, Greg Partington, who owns the advertising agency Stanley Street, um, had been looking at acquisitions of magazines too. I hadn't realised that at all. So I didn't, yeah, I hadn't met him before, but he'd been looking at lifestyle magazines. And again, one of the ones he wanted had got taken from the sales process, away, you know, taken mm. by the new owners. They, well, they started to hang on to it, so taken off the table. Um, but he got more and more passionate about the magazine publishing business as he'd gone through that process. And so even though his yeah. deal fell over as well, he still decided he wanted to he wanted to be in the magazine business. Very nice. Loves magazines. So yeah. that's where how that happened. He called me in to have a chat in late July. Um, and my first day of work was the first week of August. Very nice. Mm. Wow. And obviously, so we've got Thrive, Scout, um, Haven and Woman. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell us about these four different titles and and was there a specific reason to, you know, these four different titles? Well, he actually asked me on that first. I didn't know why I was going to meet him, by the way. Um, I had no idea, absolutely no idea why he wanted to see me. But And I went and um, he, he told me about that he was thinking about starting a magazine publishing division and would I be interested in running it for him. Um, and he told me about, you know, the suite that he was looking at and there was a potential that he could have kind of revived parts of that deal. And then he, and he said, well, the alternative is we start new magazines, you know, what would you do? And I, so I was put on the spot and I actually, I said, well, I would, I would start a portfolio of magazines. I'd probably start three or four. Four became the number that just stuck in my brain. Um, and I said, and, and, and I talked about, I said, off the top of my head, I'd do, a, I would, I'd do a, a women's magazine with a fresh perspective that is, that is completely New Zealand focused yeah. because I could see the changes that had happened at the other titles with so much Aussie content in particular coming in. Um, I see, and, and, and I guess I knew Next was no longer in the market. Yes. So I saw an opportunity there. And then I thought I thought the time was right for a well-being magazine. I thought well-being had become a category that had been interesting over the years, but uh, it had become you know interesting content for all of our titles over the years. But there hadn't been a well-being m- magazine at retail uh, in the market. So I could see that gap. Good health had gone from the market, um, but um, I thought in the year of COVID, the time was right for a magazine that was all about women's well-being. Uh, Scout, obviously we were stuck. We could could only travel in New Zealand. So a domestic tourism magazine seemed like an opportunity to me. Um, And, uh, you know, there was Kia but of course that's only available on planes. People weren't really flying. So I thought, you know, if we were going to be travelling around New Zealand, I thought there was a gap there. There used to be a domestic travel magazine. It was a goodie years ago called Holiday. So um, sort of was bringing that idea back, I guess. Um, So I could see an opportunity there. Uh, and then, yeah, Haven. Haven was actually um, Greg Partington, who uh, he, that was magazine he knew he wanted to do right from the beginning. He wanted a home title. Um, so I looked at that category and he wanted a home title, a title that was a bit more accessible than some of the others that are out there. And it's actually quite a cluttered category. There's quite a few. There's your home and garden, house and garden. There's now here. There's home. There's quite a few. Home style, habitat. There's quite a few. But um, he wanted a magazine that was... Um, more reflective of who New Zealanders are and wasn't just for homeowners, it was people that rented apartments and, you know, people that were in flats. It didn't necessarily have to be completely upmarket. So aspirational but really accessible and, I guess, representative of who we are as a people. So, And I think we've done that. So interesting, we, we talked about that on that first day. 
and that's what we ended up doing. <laughs> we and did some research in between, don't worry. We didn't yeah, just... Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> and obviously each of them have different um, editors. Yes, So that was the first thing for me, was to get those editors, those really strong editors. And they are they, you've worked with them before? They yes, got, yeah, yes. So... Um, Vanessa Marshall was the first person I picked up the phone to. So she's the editor of Haven. And she um, was a lifestyle director for me across the Mass Women's titles. She knows New Zealand women um, incredibly well. And then she went on to edit Dish magazine. And then Nadia magazine was a lovely magazine that she edited. Really creative, confident. And then Wendell Nissen, who's an old mate of mine. She uh, obviously edited the big Women's Day way back in the day. She was the queen of New Zealand magazines when I was in my 20s. I worked with her. Um, many moons ago. So she uh, gave up her magazine lifestyle to go and live uh, really this Thrive brand. She um, lives up in the Hokianga and yeah, she really cares about wellness and of, of not just her, her, herself and the people that she loves but the world around her um, and the environment she lives in. So she's kind of been ahead of her time in this space. Um, she started up the Green, Green Goddess decades ago and uh, of course we're all thinking about sustainability and things today so anyway she is a very strong editor and um, yeah she was the perfect person to edit Thrive because she embodies the brand and Sarah Kate Lynch who was also a fantastic um, editor of magazines many moons ago um, and I've known for decades but she uh, of course has gone on to to, to write uh, not just um, numerous books, but also uh, television dramas these days. But she always kept her column in the magazine. So we've worked with each other for at least 15 years in that in that capacity. And uh, for the last 10 hours at Women's Day, she was writing the travel there. So And she brings this wonderful warmth and wit to everything she writes. And she's just, just a fantastic wordsmith. Uh, and so she, to me, seemed the perfect person to edit Scout, a domestic travel magazine. And she's brought real heart to this magazine. It's not just about the beautiful places that we go to visit, but it's also about the fantastic people that she meets along the way. I think that's what makes uh, her version of uh, a travel magazine so special. And yeah, it's it's a it's a beautiful magazine. Yeah, because that's really interesting. That's sort of my next question is when you said all magazines reflect their editor, is it hard choosing what stories goes into what edition? I mean, I know uh, Women, for example, Women Magazine, the, fir- the front cover for the first edition was Valerie Adams. And, yes. you know, you had Chloe Swarbrick and Camilla Harris. I mean, how hard is it to choose who to put on the front cover when women are taking over the world in this day mm, and age? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I guess I know from many years editing mass women's titles um, what works and what doesn't. But I guess if I knew what, what was I, – I knew for certain I'd be a gazillionaire. <laughs> I probably wouldn't be working at all. Um, but um, – you know, the readers decide who they want to see on the cover at the end of the day. Um, and, and yeah, those the, the, the circulation sales vary dramatically from a great sale to, a, to an average sale. Um, and it's based on the cover. There's nothing worse than doing a cover and you think it's a beautiful cover and you're, or you're very, very proud of the issue inside and you know you've got everything, just the most perfect mix of stories. But the cover didn't resonate for one way or another. If they don't love the cover, they're not going to come on, come on in and, you know, see what's inside. So... Um, Doc, um, um, Valerie Adams, I've just, I'm a fan, you know, I just think she represents so much of, you know, what I want a woman to be about, you know, she's authentic, she's down to earth, she's, you know, proud, fiercely proudly Kiwi, I just think she's awesome, I just absolutely loved her, so I was very, I mean, it was a, it's amazing when these people had never seen a magazine that they showed that another leap of faith, you know, to come on board, um, 
but yeah, she knew me and she she liked what we wanted, what we were trying to represent, and um, um, yeah, she was. And I I've worked closely with her her management team over many years, so I'm very grateful that they trusted me with that as well. Yeah, and the first the first issues absolutely knocked it out of the park as far as sales go. Um, and I think, you know, some people question, you know, I saw someone pick up the magazine, it was a guy actually, said, what do you think, this is my first cover? And he, he sort of didn't say much. There was a pause. I went, that means you didn't like it. Why don't you like it? And I think, he, you know, I had her in her Pacific Island dress and, you know, it wasn't what he was expecting, you know, and, and I was, um, yeah, and I was loved being able to pick up the phone and say, hey. <laughs> <laughs> woman, yeah. love her, absolutely, uh, absolutely love her. She's Dame Valerie Adams. Yeah. She's just sensational. Totally. And she had, a, and you know, it doesn't matter how famous you are, um, she had um, an incredible COVID story, you know, as well. You know, it wasn't just her career. She'd been, she was supposed to be off at the Olympics, yada, yada, yada. But, um, you know, she'd had a... a a, a crisis with her, her youngest baby who had um, developed diabetes during uh, COVID and spent all this time in hospital. So she, she had all these other things that were going on at a really tough time. So, um, you know, she was actually grateful she was stuck here in New Zealand. So, she, you know, because she had to deal with this life and death situation with her family members. So, um, yeah, anyway, everyone has a story to tell and the need to tell this story and Dame Valerie Adams is yeah, no different. Absolutely. And, yeah, I guess, I mean, how has it been going? I mean, how did the industry react? And I think, yeah, I think we, were, we, were, we um, were incredibly well supported by other media at launch. I think people saw it as a phoenix rising from the ashes. They saw it as a really positive story. I think because the bower closure had been so high profile, you know, it was one of the first businesses to go under, Um uh, yeah, I think that yeah, people, other media, um, really wanted to support us. So um, we got a lot of wonderful um, PR support, and you know, I think we had a strong marketing campaign. Um, you know, our magazine was, you know, a, I think we were asking women how they actually felt through our launch marketing campaign. You know, and people hadn't really done that. We were all moving forward and just trying to cope, and we just sort of had a campaign which sort of said. How are you? You know, how are we? How, you know, we had real New Zealand speaking about their emotions about what 2020 had been for them, yeah. and I think that really touched people. You know, it showed that we understand. I think that was the key for me with women in particular was that there had been such a shift in um, where we were at, and that we I just felt we can't speak to New Zealand women in the same way we did in our magazines a year ago. Because the world has changed, you know. If there was ever a time to start something fresh with a new perspective, it was now. And I did do a hell of a lot of research. We interviewed 750 women um, about their priorities and how they had shifted and how they were feeling. And that really did help steer what I was doing with women. Sort of validated the, the, the categories that we thought were um, um, of interest to readers, but also, um, yeah, really helped steer our content as well. Mm-hmm. And these 750 women, were they sort of high profile from the no, media or just no, normal no, Kiwis? Every, everyday Kiwi wow. women. Yeah. Wow, that's special. Yeah, yeah it that's was. special. It was great. Yeah. You know, we have a wonderful um, uh, woman I worked at with Bauer for many years, uh, Kate Terry, who did our research there, and she's fantastic. So, yeah, it was really it's, it's powerful research. Mm. You know. And um, in December, you've had a partnership, December 2020, you've had a partnership with Stuff. Well, that's an example of the support we yeah. got from local media. So that came about, um, Sinead Boucher, um, yeah reached out to me and sort of said, what you're doing is amazing. Is there anything I can do to help? Which is just 
I'm not used to that kind of kindness and, and generosity in the media. I've sort of been in the sort of, you know, the competitive industry, industry yeah, for exactly. so many years. So to have that sort of um, support at launch was amazing. And, yeah, now we have a content partnership. Um, so I think, you know, our stories are reaching more people via um, that fantastic platform. So I think because they're locally owned and, you know, they could see we're locally owned, they just wanted to do what they could to help. They can see that, you know, if we're all thriving, it's just the best thing for the media industry. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I kind of want to go back to the moment um, when Woman was published. Mm. Um, tell us how it was. I mean, what was it like holding your first copy? Yeah, it is a bit like having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, um, you know, Greg, Greg um, doesn't like me talking about him, wants to say behind the scenes. Um, when it comes to this business, he goes, no, it's your thing. But I, I, he's, I said, look, I'm going out to the printers on um, Thursday. Would you like to come? And he went, yes, I would like that. So we drove out together and, yeah, it was pretty amazing seeing those copies of Valerie Adams flying off the binder, you know, this thousands thousands tens of thousands of copies you know f- flying off the machine and it you know and it printed beautifully um it was pretty special I have to say I had to do at the end of that week though um uh, that that Friday at my house and I, I and I had a you know I had a party for the team and it was a pretty special special moment and you know we had that magazine in hand and um but I was collapsed in bed by seven o'clock. I wasn't exactly the belle of the ball. I was so exhausted. It is a bit like going through labour, you know, because it had happened fast. So, you know, on my first day was August. I needed to um, get the whole team on board, you know, and we had to sell it. And, and, you know, we were on sale by October, early October. So August, September, you know, it was really two and a half months, I think. Yeah. And we were publishing. So had it been a big... Uh, couple of months so I think you know that Friday after that week that we printed I was collapsed in a heap. <laughs> yeah well, that's that what I was going to ask you because I mean where does the work-life balance come when you are trying to you know launch a new magazine was there I mean I obviously hearing from you I guess it was quite a stressful three. Oh it was but I, I guess I, 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 I have pretty good stamina I liked you know I've come from the weekly magazine world so I like working I love working you know I just love working so I've got um pretty big capacity but yeah certainly but I I drop everything in the weekends you know I'm a I'm not you know one of these massively active relaxers I'm (laughs) I'm a bit of a bit of a blob you know I might have a walk with the dog and do a few bits and bobs but I take it pretty easy in my downtime I have to admit though I stopped going to the gym I sort of went between the two lockdowns and then I said you know after that second lockdown I haven't been back to the gym and yeah, I was neither. making excuses about. I think I think a lot of people haven't been yeah, back to the gym. So, um, I made excuses about germs for a while, but actually it was because I had a new job and it was just took over my life for a while. Um, and I was and I come off four months of having all that amazing time with my family, so I don't think that they, you know, yeah. were, they weren't missing out on me. But yeah, no, I I was happy. I think when you're happy and you work, you love what you're doing, you know, makes a difference. Makes a difference. So, yes, I work life balance. Yeah, I guess for me, it's. I mean, I'm. I definitely. I, I guess I'm. I am sort of on, you know, in this digital world. I stay stay on, but there's a nice rhythm with magazines in that you do have a deadline day, and when you come and you know you work towards that peak, but when you come off deadline, you do have time to actually physically go, oh, take a deep breath, reset, and start again. And it's a slow pickup as you go back into into the next 
cycle. So absolutely, and I obviously, find that balance. I, I, you know, I make the most of that. And fortnightly is actually a lovely rhythm after being a weekly because you know, sort of, a, there's one weekend in between where I'm not thinking about work obsessively. Mm. And <laughs> like I guess, a, do you get more time to sort of compile all the stories as well and and do? Yeah, your... I mean, we are a startup, so mm. I, I mean, I don't have the same resource that I've been used to. So. That makes it busy in a different way. I mean, I do find I don't know how what you how you find in your work. I I do my biggest challenge in life is email. To be honest, is trying to keep up, isn't it? I just can't. I feel like I could be sitting there, you know, sixteen hours a day just answering emails, and I still wouldn't have got through them. You know, it's just that, that I find that the biggest sort of pressure on my work life is is email. But um, but also, you know, what a wonderful tool. So yes, I don't have the same number of um, writers. So I've, I'm relying on a lot of freelance writers, for example, and that takes, um, you know, it means I'm setting up yeah. all these stories all over the place. But I do love it. You know, I absolutely love it. And that's great. Um, I mean, because doing what you love, no matter how crazy, busy, stressful it can be, I guess it just comes down to your passion, right? Mm. And you can really see your passion behind this. Um, did you always wanted to get into journalism? Yeah. I did. Yeah. So I, my dad was a journalist um, and a newspaper man, and my brother is a journalist. He's uh, he's a newspaper man <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. Australia, and I used to get to go and visit those newsrooms in Wellington, the Evening Post, and that was just so exciting, you know. And, I, and, they, and watching that similar rhythm, you know, they had a deadline every day. I used to have to sit in the corner and wait, and while the, the they all finished that first edition, and then they'd all go off to the pub and have fun and enjoy it and then start again in the morning. I really loved that rhythm of um, watching that. And, yeah, it was – and, yeah, my dad was passionate about what he did too. You know, he was really into the design and the layout. He was a chief sub, then he became a chief reporter, and then he sort of went up the picking order. But, you know, when he was doing the sort of the, the front pages and the headlines and, you know, all that stuff, he made – He I could tell he loved what he did too. It was really dynamic um, and lots of interesting people. Um, and – so, yeah, I wanted to get into journalism from then, but he thought I should go off and do university. So I did take a little diversion for about a year and did law at university and thought it was incredibly boring and went off to journalism school the next year. Oh, wow, yeah. I, I, mean, I agree with you. There's something so intriguing watching because my father is a journalist ah. um, and he's obviously in print as well. Um, he Yeah, he used to be in print. But, yeah, it's just so interesting and honestly, I always say that journalists have the best stories, <laughs> best work stories. Um, oh, yeah. Do you have any that you're able to share with us, you know? Anyone that you've interviewed, something's happened. Oh my gosh, I'm really bad at my own yeah. stories. <laughs> I'm really bad at my own stories, and because I, because I did, um, I have had quite a. I, I think when I look back, I, I wish I was better at telling my stories, but um, I'm always looking forward, to be honest, rather than reflecting. Um, but I guess so. I, I started off in community newspapers. Not too many exciting stories there. Um, I did, you know, I was only 18 or something though, so I was really young. I do remember going to doing some, I, I sometimes I look back and just think about the audacity of myself as a teenage journalist. I remember going off, I joined the local Rotary Club, for example, in the eastern suburbs of Wellington. I was too young to be a Rotarian with all these uh, old businessmen of uh, Kilburnie, but I just knew that's where all the stories were because you could only, you had one person from every um career there, you know, every yeah, yeah, um, vocation yeah. there. And there was like one cop, one, you know, the counsellor, the business, you know, one pharmacist. Did a, so I just knew it was a great place to get stories. I think that's hilarious now that I look back. I don't think they knew how young I was. Um, and I remember going off and doing a story on the 21st um, 
anniversary of Black Power or, so, or some, some, I don't know what, I think it was the 21st. Anyway, it was a, a convention and, you know, some of the stories I did when I was young, I was just thinking, oh, my God, the audacity when yeah. you get that. But then later on I actually moved, when I, once I moved to Auckland, I worked in suburbans for a while and then I went off and worked in um, television publicity. So I sort of had 10 years of TV, and mainly TV, a little bit of film, but television publicity on both sides of the Tasman. So I worked for Shortland Street and TVNZ. I was a TVNZ publicity manager and then I went over. So we got to work with the likes of Paul Holmes and Judy Bailey and all those sort of people of that era, which was really exciting. And then I went over and worked for Channel 7 in Australia um, and ran publicity department for them in Melbourne. So I have lots of good work stories through the, probably more through the television, you know. Okay, and, you know, yeah, just, yeah. you know, But mainly that's just name dropping, so I'm not even going to go there. Okay. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I, became, I did become quite an infamous, or I don't know if it was fame or infamous in Australia for bringing over the Hiltons, at, you know, before they were famous and they became famous while they were there. Um, largely thanks to our publicity campaign, taking them to the Melbourne Cup and, okay. and then, yeah, certain certain porn tape came out at the same time in the US and the world's media was suddenly upon us. So there oh have been some gosh. interesting times that I've um, had to deal with. Yeah, so that was interesting. And then, but then I came back to work for magazines. And I guess the truth is, you know, I have a background in publicity, but I'm also a privatist too. So a lot of the good stories I tend to keep to myself. <laughs> you know, I think that you have to have that sort of integrity. So I don't share too many of those stories. But, you know, the magazine... There's definitely been lots of highlights. Mainly it's the highlights of the big stories that I've gotten to secure for the mags. That's always been great. And some of them are big celebrity stories. They're like the Richie McCall wedding was a coup. There's lots of things like that that happen that are exciting. Um, But some of them are the real life stories, you know, that have been the most touching for me. The people that have actually just shared their, their own personal journeys there are so many of those, to be honest, I can't even, but uh, yeah, those are the ones. And I think, and I think the stories, when you know one person has read a real life story and somehow it's affected them, whether they've gone and had, had, had a health check or, you know, whether they've reached out to someone in their life that um, has a mental th- health issue and, you know, made that connection. You know, those are the sort of things that are touching as well. But yeah. Probably do have some good work stories, but I'm not thinking of them for you on the spot, am I? <laughs> Sorry. But, you know, I mean, speaking of stories, it's it's so incredible how technology has changed and mm. and, and Web 2.0. I mean, yeah. you've been in the industry for, for, for 30 years now. And, and how has the stories that you report on changed or have they changed? Yeah, they have. They really changed in, in, in the magazine world, certainly. You know, when I worked for Women's Day for years, it was... You know, when I when I first got there, the editor before me had done I think fifty out of fifty two covers were international, and there were you know international celebrities on the cover, um, and that's what was making that the number one magazine in New Zealand. Um, and then very quickly overnight, you know, because of the rise of social media, everybody was suddenly following these same celebrities in the palm of their hands, and they were controlling their media in a completely different way, weren't they? Suddenly, you could just follow these celebs, and you know, social media just meant that. And the likes of the Daily Mail, you know, suddenly the access to these celebrities had changed overnight. And so people weren't resonating with them on the cover of the magazines anymore. Um, and so that meant that local stories became more and more important. Getting a true lo- local exclusive became more and more important to the magazines. They were the ones that actually started selling. Local and royal. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, but the, the sort of the, the, the power of um, international, uh, yeah, the yeah international stars no longer became the powerhouse as far as circulation went for those mags. 
um, because that all went into a digital s- space, really. Um, so yeah, that changed. So, so suddenly, th- but that meant that we got to tell more New Zealand stories, which I quite liked. You know, it was um, yeah, got to telling the stories of Kiwi women, real yeah, Kiwi women, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's really interesting because yeah, social media, Instagram have made celebrities and people who are high profile so is easily accessible. accessible. That's completely right. And also the rise of fake news. Mm. You know, I mean, how important is the role of investigative journalism in this day? Incredibly important. I saw some stats out of the state. It was a big piece of research, and of course, I don't know you were going to ask me that, so I haven't got it on me who, who it was. But there was a massive piece of research that came out of the states in Jan, second week of Jan. Um, and it was saying that I think it was sixty percent of American adults no longer believe what they, the, you know, the news that they see via social media. Wow, sixty percent. Um, yeah, that was wow. massive, and it just made me realise what an opportunity that is for real journalism. Right? It's they need it. We need it now more than ever. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. Social media is a part of all of is vital to all of our. Um, brands, you know, it's a valid part of media, but as far as news goes or real stories, you know, I think it's more important than ever that um, we invest in decent journalism. Mm-hmm. And and in terms of the publisher's responsibility, has has that changed at all? Um, you know, in terms of what they publish in their magazines. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, most of what we do is is is, is lifestyle and women's content. You know, we're not so much into the news okay. news. Yeah. It's different yeah. for us, yeah. I think. Um, but, you know, I guess that's why I was so devastated when the government deemed us non-essential um, during COVID was because we may not be a news organisation as such, but we are media and we are, magazines are an absolutely vital source of information um, for everyday New Zealanders. So. I don't know, we did so much right during COVID, didn't we? So it's hard to complain. Look at us now, we're so fortunate. But, you know, there were a couple of things I think they got wrong. I think that was one of it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and I guess this is, you know, in a time of sort of turmoil when everything is is fast-paced, you know, countries are going into lockdown, all that kind of stuff, in terms of mental health, and, and you know, obviously you, people look up to you and then they would have come to you for advice. How do you, how important is it to keep your mental health in check and make sure that, you know, your cup is full before you, you fulfill anyone mm. else's? Yeah, that is a really interesting question. No one's really asked me that <laughs> before. I'm like everybody. I guess, I, I guess I've been through one of the biggest um, crises. How do you say it? Crisis. Uh, <laughs> Crises. C- career crisis. <laughs> I had a bit, <laughs> my most. I had my most major career crisis last year in many regards. But I, I realised I've never been someone that asks for help. I, I just couldn't believe how many people reached out to me. How many people reached out to me? Like you soon learn how you, who your friends are, and I guess that's where I get my mental stability from is I'm a talker so well I'm, I'm not actually I'm a, I've, I've, I've historically I've internalized a lot of um what's going on for me but last year you know I talked and talked and talked and talked and talked you know I was every single day there were so many people that were reaching out uh, to me that really cared so yeah that's how I probably keep my mental health in check is just making sure that I keep talking you know you've always had a passion for telling Kiwi women's stories um and I wanted to know how have magazines sort of evolved over time, and 
what is it about them that that creates this huge supporter base? You know, mm, I think yeah, it's a big question, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I guess you know something like the first woman's magazine was set up in the Depression in New Zealand, and I guess it was um, started to be a companion to New Zealand Woman, and that was the New Zealand Woman's Weekly back in 1932, you know, so it's a long time ago, and it thrived and it thrived and it thrived, and it's still a thriving publication today, um, and as is the Australian Women's Weekly in Australia. So I think I think it's about, um, yeah, showing women that you understand, um, connecting them, speaking, yeah, inspiring them, informing them, yeah, and making them feel part of this huge community. For me, it's never been just a magazine brand. It's about bringing all these women together through the pages of this magazine. And I think women love connection. We want to be part of a community. And more. And I think now more than ever, we're looking into New Zealand and we want to all feel like we're connected here. We're not looking to overseas like we always have as little old New Zealand at the other end of the world, you know. We're actually like, we're here and we're grateful to be here and we're looking to each other. So I think the magazines do that. Um, and I always think that's pretty amazing that, you know, on a Monday morning when a magazine comes out, I think, you know, there's women from Kataya to Bluff that are all, you know, connected for that moment that they're looking through the pages of the magazine or they're connecting with us on social media or via our um, digital platforms. It's pretty amazing. So, yeah, for me it's always been more than... A magazine, it's a community, and I think that's the secret to their success. Mm. And um, I actually read somewhere that um, you went into the magazine industry because you're a big fan of Princess Diana. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah it's true. Yeah, There's no and, and denying it. You went into into the magazine to sort of honour her memory. That's that's incredible. That Tell was part about, of it. I yeah. mean, I think well, actually, no, my friend Nick said that about me. He said, "I think that's why you've got to take that job. <laughs> you need to honour memory." This is how ridiculous now. But it's true. I, you should see my bathroom. It's a, it's a bit of a shrine to Diana. Um, I guess it was my age and stage. Yeah, I obviously, yeah. I And I, I absorbed her through the media as well. You know, I had all the books. I had the haircut. I had the skirt. I, had the, <laughs> I was obsessed with her as a little girl. And that wedding, you know, um, that wedding was still so, I remember staying up to watch that. It was a pivotal moment in my life. Two pivotal moments are so extremely different. Probably the Springbok tour and Princess Diana's weddings. You couldn't get two more, you know, polar opposites as far as historic events. But those were my childhood with the two biggies. Um, and yeah, so um, yeah, barbed wire battens and 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 and, and a meringue <laughs> bridal dress. <laughs> it's all quite different. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, no, I, I I I was I've always had a thing for the royals. So, and I've been mocked for it and I've been teased for it. But, you know, as I've got gotten older, I've actually started to say, hey, hold on, look at this amazing role they have. And I think as I think about, you know, the role of the royals during COVID in England, you know, they've just brought so much comfort. I think a lot of it's about comfort and uh, making people feel secure. And, um, yeah, yep, it's true. I was a mad Princess Diana fan. And it's interesting, though, because, of course, magazines, that was a turnaround the death of Diana was a turnaround for magazines. That was the start of the decline of magazines. There's like a lot of people 
stopped reading magazines after that. A, they'd loved her and there was never someone as popular as her in the history of magazines. Um, and she was no longer there. But also there was a bit of a blame game going on, right? Because she was, it was the whole paparazzi machine was a part of that magazine world. So people turned against them in that way. Mm-hmm. I have to say for me doing what I'm doing now is um, I'm in, with the new magazine. I've had years of, you know, being in, working with magazines that deal with sort of paparazzi and gossip and it's just so nice to leave it all behind. <laughs> I've done it, I, you know, and I used to sort of defend it because I thought I said, that's what New Zealand women want, you know, we're giving women what they want, you know, and it, it was never my magazine, I was always the guardian of a magazine and that was part of its DNA, you know, so, but now I'm like, I got to start my own thing and I got to leave it leave it all behind I'm quite happy about that yeah well that's interesting because I mean you know <laughs> I don't even think people need paparazzi these days because social media like you've got Instagram stories you can literally document what you're having for breakfast or Absolutely. where you are and you can tag location I mean that's just changed everything it has changed everything and those paparazzis have gone out of business basically because it just doesn't no one cares anymore mm. and I think it was it's still actually a big culture in the US though not so yeah, much in Z yeah, yeah there's just not quite the same um, demand yeah. for it because people can control their own story through their own social media you know yeah very very quickly that whole Hollywood machine I have to say because I worked as a publicist in entertainment for so many years and I, I um, you know you did get to control a star's profile you know media profile um, to a certain extent and yes there was a crisis now and then someone would you know punch someone at a nightclub and you'd have to deal with that and da 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 but generally um, you know you could help control the narrative um, if you had good media relationships you know and Nowadays, I'm like, oh my gosh, with social media. Imagine being looking after the media profile of stars with the power of social media because everyone's got a camera. My gosh. Yeah. And well, just it's, it's, it's also the power of tagging, right? Mm. You're tagged in a viral mm. tweet or tag or whatever it is and it just, poof, just mm. blows up. And I wanted to know, you know, what advice would you give a young journalist who is looking to get into the magazine industry? To write, just to write. I hear so many people saying they want to write, and I and they talk to me about that, and I said, "Well, write. <laughs> You've just got to actually." I mean, that's how I got into it. I mean, but those stories that I wrote, they were just covered in red pen. <laughs> um, my dad was a sub editor, so he was pretty ruthless with my stories. Oh my gosh! Um, and you just got to write and write and write and write until you find your voice. Um, but I have to say, you know, it is harder and harder for. Um, um, magazine journalists now, I mean, for, 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 for journalism students to sort of think magazines now, isn't it? Uh, I think that, you know, we need to be able to not just think of a, a story for our magazines, we've got to think about it as a 360. We've got to think about the potential for how that's going to play on digital. What's the video potential? Is there a podcast interview out of this? We've got to think so much so so much more than that, uh, that written word. Um, we've really got to think, be able to think about that whole well, we all just want to. I guess journalists just want to get their stories out to as many people as possible. And so, even though uh, a lot of the magazine subscriptions aren't, what, um, sorry, circulations aren't what they were 10, 20 years ago, there are so many more ways potentially to get your one story out to a, to an even wider audience. I find that really exciting. Um, but yeah, I can see why so many uh, journalism students also go into PR. There seems to be. Uh, <laughs> You know, I don't know. It feels like there's twenty people and twenty PRs to every journal these days. I don't know what the stats are, to be honest, but um, I think you need both strings to your bow, is what I would say. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Final question, and this might be a very super hard question for you. There has been a recent trend lately on YouTube that celebrities and influencers um, document what they eat in, in their day. Um, are you able to share with us what you eat in a day? Oh my <laughs> gosh. That is hilarious. Uh, what I eat on a weekday compared with a weekend is very different, by the way. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this morning, yeah, so this, this morning, oh my gosh, this is a really hard question. Okay, for the month of, month of February, we as a family, I've gone, I'm not, I'm gone alcohol free for the month because it was a big Christmas January and I just needed to stay off of the booze for a little while. I'm too, have a, I like my margaritas too much, so I'm having no alcohol in, in February. And also my little boy, he's only 11, wanted to go vegetarian for the month. So we're pescatarian. I don't want to go vegetarian, but I'm said I'll be pescatarian. So this, so it's only, what are we? Five days into February. I've been good. Uh, the, the, the diet hasn't been what it normally would be. But yeah, this morning I had my yogurt, banana and uh, moussey for breakfast. Quite often I just have a smoothie for breakfast um, to get that protein in, into my system uh, for the day. Then I usually skip lunch. <laughs> I just do. I go looking for little nibbles in the office, you know, <laughs> lollies in the bottom of my bag. Uh, and then last night for... Um, dinner we had we had brown rice tofu and vegetables oh doesn't that sound so healthy <laughs> but that is not normal the night before we have fish and that was and the night before we have fish burgers so we're just sort of working through this kind of vegetarian pescatarian thing this week mm, so mm. yeah and then we went to the movies and I ate way too many lollies oh lollies chocolates they're the yeah. essence of life to be honest yeah my daughter was on one side of me my son was on me the other and my daughter said if you rustle those lollies through the movie so I said okay we'll eat them extra fast uh, <laughs> so we yeah. ate some of those lollies so no I'm a um in the weekend though I make sure that it's a nice big eggy breakfast nice. you know and I love catching up with friends I love my Asian food so we invariably go and have dumplings or yamcha or noodles or something I love my Asian food. Uh, so, yeah, that happens quite a lot in the weekends too. And um, just final thing, if our listeners want to reach out to you, uh, follow your journey, where can they do this on? Do you have a website, a Twitter I'm account? I'm on Instagram and they can always email me as well. But Instagram is my favourite social. People think I'm a bit of a dinosaur like that, but I don't, I'm not on Twitter and I'm not on Facebook because I just feel like, find there's a lot of negativity there and I like to try to keep myself in a pretty positive bubble and I find that Instagram is the most positive one What's that your works handle? for me. Cedar Kitchen. Cedar Kitchen? There's no other okay. Cedar Kitchens. Of course. I was private for ages because of my kids. Um, when I was at Women's Day and, you know, and occasionally, you know, Women's Day would get in trouble, so it's probably quite good I was private. But my daughter said, you sh- I don't want all my photos going everywhere. You know, it's teenage daughters, they don't like that. So I was private for a while. But I'm open now and I really love it. I like it. I like it because it's all positive. There's yeah. nothing. I've, it's just photos and, yeah, you know. Pretty ca- nice mm. captions and keeping in touch. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a bit Very late. Nice. That's me. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the Sweet Swat, Cedo. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please like, review or share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to follow us, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn under Alexander PR or follow the links in the show notes below. Until next time, thank you for listening.